Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Thanks for being here with us this morning. Uh, thank you to our worship team and to Rebecca and to Adriana for leading us in our announcements and getting us rolling. Uh, if you didn't see, I was holding Mia, and then right before we came up here, she decided to spit up right on me, so I think I got it just in time. It was a little dodge, but, but we're here. Uh, thanks for being here. It's great to see your faces on this beautiful, slightly brisk January morning. Uh, if this is your first time here with us, welcome. Uh, my name is Jason. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at City Collective. We say this every week, wherever you find yourself on your journey of faith, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, not really sure about Jesus at all, we hope this is a safe place for you, and uh, we hope that you feel welcome. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called It's Complicated. We decided to open up the year having conversations around relationships. And I think we can all agree, it doesn't matter where our relationships are pointed, they are complicated. Uh, they're riddled with, with past experiences, current emotions, uh, weight that we've carried from, from previous relationships that we, we impose on the next. So there, there is so many aspects of relationships that we are forced to consider on a day-to-day -day basis because, in fact... Uh, we're, we're designed for relationship. You're not designed to do life alone. You're designed to do it with people, with those that you love, to do it together. And the challenge of doing it together is that the together people that you're with are as complicated as you are. And so for the first couple of weeks of the series, we've, we've explored our relationship with God. Week one, we talked around the word covenant. And then week two, we talked about relationship with others and, and the central dynamic of forgiveness. That within the Christian faith, I, I think it's actually the, the central paradigm that we're invited to embrace the most. And that is forgiveness. But forgiveness is not, it's not a small subject. Uh, someone said to me after the sermon last week to talk about forgiveness kind of feels like you're going for the jugular. Uh, we've all got it. We've all got this, this, this challenge that we face. But we're going to continue the conversation. And last week, forgiveness for others. And today I want to talk about forgiving the person that may be the most difficult, difficult for many people to forgive. And that is yourself. How do you forgive yourself when you let people down? Or when you hurt someone you love? When, when you think about it, it can be so difficult because we know what we did. We know what we shouldn't have done. And, and in many ways, we wish that we could take it back. And now we carry around this thing called shame. Now, I am no expert on the conversation of shame. There, there are many uh, far more research far more profound individuals speaking on shame than myself. Someone like Brene Brown, perhaps you've heard, she, she's, she talks extensively around the conversation of vulnerability and, and shame. And, and in particular, uh, so she, she's a, a research professor. She studied shame over the course of a couple decades, and she says this about it. She says that shame is that warm feeling 
that washes over us, making us feel small, flawed, and never good enough. I know I've had moments of shame. Making mistakes, feeling the weight of them, and, and despite growing up in a Christian home and being aware of the forgiveness that Jesus offers, so often I would think to myself, he might forgive me, but I don't know if I can forgive myself. Because that's what shame so often looks like internally. It's a statement that we repeat over and over again in our, in our spiral of shame. I can't forgive myself. So, I want to preface, this is, a, this is a heavy conversation this morning. It's good that the rest of the service felt a little lighter, perhaps, because we're getting into it. Uh, this is a messy, messy topic. We spent the first couple weeks in the, in the book of Genesis, and we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning as well and partner with the Gospel of John. But in chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Genesis, we're presented with, with two creation narratives. And Tim Mackey, he explains this. He explains that when biblical authors want to get at a, a key question, like, why are we here? That they do so by presenting and crafting narratives. So, when, when the author depicts what humans are here for and what the ideal human relationship looks like, the author presents a narrative. And so this is what we find when we look at Genesis chapter 2. So we're going to read Genesis 2 verses 22 to 25. Uh, you can follow along on the screen behind me. And it says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And I want you to pay close attention to verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The man and his wife are both naked, and they felt no shame. Not naked and afraid, naked and no shame. And that's where the chapter ends. Feels like an odd way to end the story, but I think it's actually incredibly profound because what the author is trying to communicate to us is what we are, are made for. And it's this. It's to be in honest, open, vulnerable, accepting, free from rejection relationships. That is the way you and I have been designed. No wonder we crave it. No wonder we, we come alive in a way that seems so different than our day-to-day -day when we come across someone that sees us for who we really are, that accepts us where we're really at. And when we experience that, there, there's something new that comes out of us because that is the manner in which we've been designed. Unfortunately, the story doesn't stop there. Because the following chapter, Adam and Eve, they make a choice to disobey God. And in fear and in shame, they cover themselves. They cover themselves. Their response to the mistake is to move away from the flourishing design of humanity. 
When they made a mistake, they covered themselves. When they made a mistake, they, they decided it was no longer safe to be open and vulnerable in the manner in which they were designed. Now, I'm not advocating for nudist colonies. This is not the theme of today's talk, but somehow, now that human nature and desire is in control of things, it's no longer safe to be naked, to be open and vulnerable. It's, it just doesn't feel safe anymore. Something's happened. And so they cover themselves and they have this urge to hide. And this is what the author of Genesis calls shame. This urge to hide. This decision that my mistake means I'm no longer accepted. And if I'm no longer accepted, I no longer want to be seen. The problem with that is that when we are no longer seen, we're no longer on the track to flourishing relationships for which we were designed. We've been there. Because we, we know who we are, we know what we've done, we know our past, and we hide from each other in plain sight. So this is complicated. But here, here's the complex portion of this. And it's the question I want to ask. When you've done something wrong, is feeling bad about it wrong? Essentially, is guilt okay? And I want to explore it this way. According to market research companies uh, that specialize in digital activity, 71% of, of Canadian internet users, about 17.6 million people, they visit YouTube every single month. Only 55% of American online users hit the video site every month. Therefore, Canadians really love YouTube. <laughs> Even just in compared to the other G7 countries, more Canadians percentage-wise watch YouTube than every, any other country, and I fall in that category. Okay, I love, uh, YouTube is, is the one social media that I find myself wasting far too much time on. If I'm hanging out and I'm on the interwebs and I'm browsing and Adriana comes over and she's checking out, hey, what you, what you doing, what you looking at? She's going to see a, a laundry list of open tabs of YouTube videos for me to watch. Everything starting from Mr. Beast, stay in a circle for 100 hours and win a million dollars to uh, Yes Theory, they stay on the loneliest place on the earth for, for 48 hours and like all these like random things. I want to see historical videos. I want to see all that. But the one that really gets me is food videos. <laughs> Every time. I have, I, I, I for some reason like so desperately want to know how a bakery in New York City makes the best salted caramel donut around. Like that's the one that I end up watching. And I watch that one and there's, there's another channel and what they do is they, they take one type of food and they say like how much, how how much is the difference between uh, a $1 and a $113 uh, lechon from, from the Philippines? Or how much is a $1 versus a, a $25 taco in Mexico? And they, they contrast and they compare and they take the same item, they take it from the same place, and they take it from, from the same category, and they find out that they're very, very different. And I think guilt is this exact same way. 
All guilt is not created equal. Might be the same category. You feel bad about something that's been done. Might be the same place. It's been done towards somebody that you love. But all guilt is not created equal. They can be very, very different. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. I want to look at three ideas born from what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. It says this. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. We live in a, in a time and in a culture where everything is accepted. And in fact, you shouldn't feel bad about anything. Every, every moniker, every, every paradigm, every slogan within our culture falls along the lines of, of you should just do what you want to do. You should do what's best for you. Everything is, is geared towards you do you. And it's perfectly okay. No regrets. Live your life. And what this has evolved into is this, this approach has evolved into this cultural mentality that we can make an automatic excuse for wrongdoing. We, we've made the idea of guilt to be a singular one. We've, we've lost the complexity of it. And therefore, we've actually rejected it. Or... We take it to the extreme. I shouldn't feel bad about what I do, but you've done something to me and you should be treated harshly for it. This is the way our culture has decided to deal with guilt and with shame. But not all guilt is bad. In fact, there is a type of guilt that actually can be a gift that is meant to draw us closer to God. This is what Paul is talking about when he says godly sorrow. This is a sorrow that says, I wish I hadn't done that. That wasn't the right thing. I, I hurt somebody and I would give anything to do that over. This is a sorrow that's meant to lead us to a place of repentance and leaves no regret. This is a feeling of conviction that can be good and helpful because it's a recognition of something that's been done that's wrong. And it says, I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to say those things. I want to change directions. I want to turn around because repentance is, is turning around and changing our ways. And this is what we're invited into. Unfortunately, the challenge that we often face is that guilt leads not to repentance, but to regret. And when the fruit of guilt is regret, it evolves into something far different than what godly sorrow is meant to be. One biblical character in particular that you might hear often within church circles is the character of Peter. And Peter gets talked about a lot because he's incredibly relatable. He's got a lot of great qualities, sure, but man, he puts his foot in his mouth 
often. I can, I can relate with that. That you feel like you're doing the right thing and you're, you're walking the right path and then you just, you just make a mistake. You fall off the cliff that you, you didn't even see coming and, and you put your foot in your mouth and he does it over and over again. There, there's a story in John chapter 13 where Peter is being that guy. He comes a little bit braggy. He's feeling a little bit good about himself and he wants to elevate himself above the other disciples. And, and Jesus is, is there with them. And he tells Jesus that no matter what happens to you, I got your back. I'm with you. You have nothing to worry about. They might ditch you, not me. I'm with you. And, and Jesus, he sees through the pride that Peter has in that moment. And he says, relax a second. Oh, Peter, oh, Peter. Because before the rooster crows, you're actually going to deny me three times. Fast forward from John 13 to John 18, and that is exactly what happens. Peter is amongst the crowd, and he hears someone say to him, weren't you one of the guys that was traveling with Jesus? Who, who Jesus? No, 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 not me. And he does it once, he does it twice, he does it three times. And in Luke 22, verse 61 to 62, it actually says that in that final moment, within that final moment of denial, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Have you ever been there? Made a claim, you made a promise, perhaps with the same kind of gusto and confidence that Peter did. And then it didn't go the way that you had intended. In fact, it went to the point of, of hurting the person that you intended to help. And it, where does that leave you? Weeping bitterly, D distraught, overwhelmed, thinking to yourself, how could I let someone that I love down that way? What? And then what happens next? Well, we say to ourselves, well, I'm not going to let it happen again. And unfortunately, in our brokenness, we let it happen again. And maybe it doesn't look the exact same way, but it, it's in some form. We, we have it happen. And then we find ourselves lying awake at night thinking to ourselves, how could I let that happen all over again? Why was I so stupid? How could God love someone who could treat people this way that doesn't get it right? And always falls short and this narrative begins to spiral and the moment we find ourselves spiraling down this thought tunnel is where we find godly sorrow becoming something else. Godly sorrow is instead leading us to a place of regret and this is where guilt is no longer a good thing because this is when guilt becomes shame. Shame is never the intention of God. Shame is never the desire of God. And, and we've, we've confused the ideas of guilt and shame in, within our culture because we need to recognize what's wrong so that we can move to a place of repentance and to growth and to improvement. But shame doesn't lead us there. Shame, in, in fact, does quite the opposite. We're going to look at three different ideas 
around the idea of guilt and shame. Number one, guilt that connects action with identity has become shame. Guilt that connects action with identity has become shame. The minute I dwell in my shame, the spiritual enemy has me in a corner. Because there's a big difference between guilt and shame. Guilt or godly sorrow leads us to pursue change. It leads us to a place of pursuing healing and flourishing. But shame or worldly sorrow, as Paul puts it, leads us down a path of this paralyzed pity and self-harm. Now, the language of self-harm, it's all-encompassing. There's the the reality of, of the way that we speak to ourselves, the way that we physically treat ourselves, and shame is often the source of it. The problem that we run into is that as we go through life and we are influenced by culture over time, that period of guilt that we have after doing something wrong gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And it morphs into something else really quickly. Whether it becomes something on the opposite side of self-righteousness and apathy or it becomes something like shame. I want to qualify this idea really quickly that there is, there's the reality that Many of us are carrying something called false guilt. False guilt is often seen within situations of of, of abuse, uh, in situations of, of power dynamics being out of whack, where the victim holds guilt in a situation that they are not responsible for. In situations where false guilt is present, that is never godly sorrow because there is not something to feel bad for. You are not responsible for the actions of another. And in fact, the the shame that you are feeling is not a true definer of who you are. Shame is not God's intention for you in your story. Shame, it connects your action to your identity. Guilt says, I did something bad and I want to change. Shame says, I am bad and that's the way that it is. It personalizes a behavior, personalizes a mistake, and it actually pushes away God. Because the enemy wants you to believe that you are worthless and unable to pursue what God has for you. It says in the scripture that worldly sorrow brings death. And that is the death of aspiration. That's the death of joy. That's the death of our souls. So what do we do in that moment? We we, we hide it all. Because we're afraid to be known by our mistakes. And here's the interesting piece. Guilt connects our action to our identity But that is not always the way that other people do it. That is a narrative that's taking place within ourselves. We've hidden away the mistake that we've made. We've buried it down. And we've said, I can't expose this to the world because I'm going to be rejected. And even though it doesn't matter what other people say about you, you feel like you know you. And so you've made the decision that that is your identity in that moment because of the shame that you are carrying 
So we hide it all. And it impacts our relationships with others, with God, and with ourselves. Number two, guilt can lead us to God while shame convinces us to run. Back to our our, our friend Peter. You can almost imagine the dialogue that Peter must have had going through his mind when Jesus looked at him. You blew it. This was your chance. You could have been a man of your word. You could have stepped up in a way that would have mattered. And instead of, of responding in a way of going towards Jesus, it says that he goes outside and he weeps bitterly. What does he do in response to the feeling of the mistake? Shame invades his moment and he isolates himself. Moves him away from the source of healing that was directly in front of him. And the same thing takes place in the Garden of Eden. A mistake takes place and the first thing that they feel like they need to do where shame leads them is actually to hide from a father that is pursuing them, that is looking for them, that wants to be in relationship with them. What shame will always try to do is to drive you away from God. God went looking for them in the garden and Jesus made eye contact with Peter when that moment took place. And the response of those who feel in moments of shame is to feel like we need to run and hide. We've all been there. Guilt can become a path that drives us to God or when it becomes something that it's not meant to be, it drives us away from God. So the question then becomes, how do we stop the shift? How do we let guilt be godly sorrow and not shame? Well, thankfully for Peter and his story, he didn't didn't have it all end for him on that night of his denial. In John's Gospel, chapter 21, it's the chapter after the resurrection. Jesus actually shows up to Peter and his disciples Shows up to Peter, the the one who failed three times, the one who denied Jesus in front of Jesus' eyes. And Jesus gathers with Peter and the disciples around the fire and he looks at Peter in the eyes and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, yes, I love you. I, I did love you. I did love you then. I just did something stupid. I'm so sorry. Isn't that the way it is sometimes? Yes, I love you. Yes, I want to do what's right. Yes, I messed up. I just don't know why. I just did it. I, I love you. And we're, we're, we're trying to, to clamor back to that place, but we're still trying to, to get over what we've done in the past. And the response of Jesus to, to Peter's response isn't, isn't what we often play out in our own minds. Well, you know what? I did see you do that. That mistake that you made, let's talk about that. I need you to understand how badly you messed up. The response of Jesus was to ask again, do you love me? And he draws him in and he draws him in with those words. And then finally, I can imagine Jesus sitting around that fire, looking at this man that feels so much shame because of the mistake that he made. And with a smile, he says, then feed my sheep. In other words, do my will. Go show my love. Finish your assignment. 
Do you love me? Yes, you do. Good. You're forgiven. Live in that forgiveness. Go do what you're created to do. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he is cutting through shame that was invading Peter's heart and reminding Peter of his identity. You are my child with a God-given purpose. Your mistake is not your identity. I choose your identity. And how does Jesus do it in this moment? He does it with empathy. Number three, shame is overcome by empathy. Now, this might not be the most... Uh, spiritual point. It can feel like what, what is empathy to have a nice conversation, to, to feel like you're just sitting with someone. But this is exactly what we, what we hear. Brene Brown, she talks about in our need for overcoming shame. She says, shame can't survive with someone who responds with empathy and understanding. And where is empathy shown in the life of Jesus? Well, empathy is the life of Jesus. It is the gospel message. That humanity in its brokenness and sin was lost and death was the consequence. But God did not remain aloof and separate. God did not subject humanity to simple pity and kind words and a bouquet of flowers. God came in Jesus to be fully part of our experience of brokenness, of hurt, of shame, of darkness, of, of all, that, all that we experience. God experienced it fully for himself, and he didn't just come to experience it, but to overcome it. He came with purpose, and he defeated death itself so that you and I can find freedom and life like we were designed to have. Now, I've used this analogy before, but I, I, I picture our experience of life often that we are stuck down in this pit. There's no way out. We, we, we look around us and we always see is darkness. And occasionally we get glimpses of light from up above, but it's darkness all around us. It's, it's underneath us. We can't get out and we're stuck there. And often we, we think about God as a God of pity, that he's standing on the edge of that pit and he's looking down. He said, you know what? Maybe better, not, better luck next time. When you die, maybe you'll get up here and it'll be better. And we, he sends us like a, a nice thought every once in a while, a hope and a prayer, a text message and says things will get better. And he walks away. But that's not what the God of the Bible did. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus comes to the edge of that pit, sees us in our struggle, then decides to come down into the struggle and experience all of it with us. He sees the darkness. He experiences the fullness of the pain that we have in that pit ourselves. And he doesn't just come unequipped he comes with a rope so that he can get out with us alongside of him that is the God of empathy that is who Jesus is and empathy overcomes shame the gospel of truth is that your shame is not possible in the light of Jesus that it has no hold on your heart when we invite Jesus into the situation 
Shame is overcome by empathy, and the greatest representation, the truest representation of that is Jesus coming to be with us, Emmanuel. Out of the tomb, where does Jesus go? He goes around the fire with his disciples, with the one that rejected him, with the one that failed him, with the one that forgot him, and he says to him, I know your purpose, and it's to be used by me. That shame that you, are been, that you are carrying, that you're feeling, it's gone. You're forgiven. I want you to hear the identity that I have for you, in fact. John 20 is the empty tune. John 21 is the declaration of purpose. And this time around, Peter gets it right in his response. He, he, he says, I don't, I, uh, he doesn't say, I can't receive your blessing. I'll, I'll never get over what I'm processing through. Or I don't deserve it. Peter didn't do that. In fact, he says, yes. I'm going to take this hand that's offered to me and receive the forgiveness that's given. I know for, for myself, I can, I can be so stubborn within my own shame that I don't see the, the rope that is offered directly in front of me. And I'm holding on to this rope of shame that I think connects me to something. And in fact, we're being invited to let that go and grab hold of the rope of grace and be lifted out of the pit that we find ourselves in. For some of you this morning, forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past and placing our hope for the future in a generous God. Because think about it. Think about Peter. Who did God choose to be the guest speaker at Pentecost when the Spirit of God fell? God chose Peter. He chose someone to preach the truth and lead people to grace and to... to be part of a history-changing moment. And he didn't choose the one who was perfect. He chose the one who was forgiven. He didn't choose the one who was faithful. He chose the one who had experienced grace. Hear me this morning. You are not what you did. That's something that you did but that's not who you are. We need to learn to embrace godly sorrow, to move to a place of repentance, and to reject worldly sorrow that wishes to define us by our mistakes. Some of you are even battling this thought right now. You don't know what's taken place. You, you can't. You can't even imagine what, what has happened. The devil wants you to think that's who you are, but Jesus makes all things new. This is the hope of the gospel. Yep, that was a bad page in the book. That was something that we, we are not happy about, but we want to move past, that we can move past. Because the story isn't over yet. God's still writing your story. Paul said, you can be confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it out until completion. The key 
to forgiving yourself is accepting God's forgiveness. And the hardest person to, that you might ever have to forgive is yourself. Worship team, can you join me at the front? There might be a conflict that you feel. Because sometimes to, to, for, to forgive others is, is this gift that we give. It's a generosity of ourselves. But to forgive ourselves is, is to receive something. It's about seeing the gift of unconditional love and forgiveness offered by Jesus on the cross and living with the confidence that Christ is enough and the shame that I'm experiencing is not the truth that I hold on to. Shame and grace are our voices pulling at either side of us. Shame calls us towards our mistakes and failures, while grace calls us towards his unconditional love and forgiveness. Which voice are we going to choose to listen to this morning? The one that identifies us by our mistakes or the one that identifies you as a child of God? The beauty of the gospel is that it's just a question to let go. Let go of that rope of shame and grab hold of that rope of grace and experience the freedom that Jesus wants for you. Would you close your eyes and, and pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word this morning, for the way in which you have shown yourself to be kind and to be generous. To be present and to be so, so powerfully moving in our lives. Holy Spirit, in this, in this space, if there's any, any wounds or any hurts that have been unearthed, I pray comfort. I pray healing. And I pray peace. for the ways in which we feel like we can't forgive ourselves, I pray courage to let go. Let go of the rope of shame that wishes to hold us down, that wishes to call us by our mistakes, and the lies of the enemy that would be whispered day after day to remind us of what was done. I pray they are overwhelmed by a voice from heaven that says, you are my child, you are my beloved, and in you I am pleased. Thank you that forgiveness is at the core of who you are and help us to receive that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.